to change a system, we don't always have to go broad. We can sometimes have micro moments that ripple out and invisibly shift something in the culture. I'm a real believer in the power of that. So I think that that's another reason why leaders need to go to the heart because when leaders have those heartfelt moments, it does ripple out more broadly because leaders set the tone and, you know, model the culture. A lot of racialized leaders at the CEO level have completely, especially divorced themselves from experiences of immigration or what it means to be racialized or not fit in or the moments that I've described in the book, because it's even more of a liability for me to touch those experiences of vulnerability as a non-white leader. And yet again, I think even more reason why they're needed and can ripple out. Welcome to the Reboot Podcast. We are so glad you're here. I first met on Heat while I was editing the last of many revisions of my forthcoming book, Reunion, Leadership and the Longing to Belong. We'd met at the urging of our mutual friend, Parker Palmer, and across several conversations, we found a resonance in our views that belied the differences in our experiences. We found, for example, shared laughter, and we found shared broken open hearts. But we also found a deep commitment to doing our work, the inner work necessary to push back against racism and the other forms of systemic oppression ravaging our communities. A few days before the conversation that is this episode of the Reboot podcast, I'd gathered with some friends in Washington, D.C. for a weekend of sharing our own stories of belonging. That weekend was part of my doing my work in the pushback against systemic othering. Taking a break from our sharing, we'd visited the National Portrait Gallery, and at the gallery, we'd wandered into an exhibit called Kinship that featured the works of artists who used portraiture to tell stories of families, of kinship, and, I'd realized, of belonging. Standing before each work, I found myself feeling the power of kinship, and I thought of the time, years ago, when I'd visited a churchyard in Ireland where my grandmother rested. I thought of the bones of my ancestors who lay beside her, and I thought of how I had claimed those ancestors as kin. Prior to writing Reunion, prior to committing myself to responding to the longing to belong, I, more than likely, would have seen the loveliness of those photos. But I would have failed to feel the longing implicit in each of them. Before portraits of remarkable people doing the unremarkable work of simply trying to belong to one another, I recalled my lost ancestors. And, recalling those ancestors, recalling their bones laying in a distant churchyard, I felt the visceral power of kinship. And then I thought of my friend, Anahit. Today, listening again to our conversation, I sense myself claiming our kinship for having begun the necessary work of becoming a leader who not only strives to be a better human, but who also dedicates his efforts to others' belonging. I've come to know that such kinship is the felt sense of the reunion, 
about which poets speak. When Angels Speak of Love by Bell Hooks When angels speak of love, they tell us all is union and reunion. Dying, reborn again, there is no separation, no end to paradise. We are always present, the ecstatic moving us along each current, each wilderness of spirit, a dedicated path. Whether it's in a churchyard in Ireland, or the narrow alleys of the tiny Italian commune where my ancestors were birthed, baptized, and buried, or the halls of a museum in the most powerful city in the world, kinship is everywhere. We merely have to claim it. Indeed, once I claimed those of my ancestors who had been dismembered, I found my own belonging. The work of finding and claiming kin, though, was not my only challenge. My work as a writer was to grow beyond what had come before. When I began doing the work of understanding leadership and the longing to belong, I was haunted not only by the dismembered ghosts of my ancestors, but by my own past work. Tossing and turning at night, worrying if I would meet the expectations of those who read and enjoyed my first book, Reboot, I felt the sharp truth of a favorite line from writer John McPhee. It doesn't matter that something you've done before worked out well, he wrote. Your last piece is never going to write your next one for you. Indeed. Now I see also the wisdom in McPhee's statement. Had I relied only on my past work, had I not struggled through the emotions and memories to create something new and beyond what I'd done before, I would have failed to live up to the importance of this work itself. Perhaps I failed still. Perhaps my efforts, as well as my conversation with kin like Anahit, might be riddled with errors and mistakes. If so, those are mine alone, and I claim them as I claim the dismembered parts of myself and kinfolk, near and far, past and present. But, importantly, if I have failed, it won't have been for a lack of trying. It won't have been for an unwillingness to slay myself. And where we had thought to find an abomination, we shall find a god wrote Joseph Campbell. And where we had thought to slay another, we shall slay ourselves. Where we had thought to travel outwards, we shall come to the center of our own existence. And where we had thought to be alone, we shall be with all the world. May this conversation with Anahid help bring you closer to the center of your own existence. For, in the end, And in that place, you shall know that you are not alone. And more than that, that your longing to belong may be quenched. At Reboot, we believe that work doesn't have to destroy us. Work can be the way that we achieve our fullest selves and in doing so become more effective leaders, colleagues, and human beings. If you're looking for support in unlocking the best way for you to lead and build your company, Reboot Coaching may be the right fit for you. Whether you've stepped into a new leadership role, your company is rapidly scaling, 
you need help managing your board, or are looking for support as you transition into the next stage of your life, Reboot Coaching is here to help. We know that holding a leadership seat can be isolating and lonely, but you don't have to go it alone. To learn more about Reboot Coaching, head to reboot.io slash coaching. Well, hello there. Hi, it's, Jerry. Hid, it, it's delightful to see you again. Um, I've really been looking forward to this. I, I, I will confess that you're the first author uh, that I've had on the show for whom I've read two books of yours. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I feel so honored. <laughs> um, and I do want to uh, plug the first book as well. Um, I found Breaking the Ocean to be deeply moving and um, beautiful imagery and super helpful. Uh, as you know, as I was in the throes, as we shared as good friends of my own process, um, and it was uh, very moving for me. And then I had the delight of getting an early copy of Bones of Belonging, Finding Wholeness in a White World. And I think I very enthusiastically emailed you, um, but I'll say this out loud, a hearty, deep felt thank you for writing mm. this book. Um, it is wonderful. So I'm super excited to, to jump in and have our conversation. But, you know, before we get started, I like to ask our guests to identify themselves and... Mm. You know, however feels right for you. Oh, thanks, Jerry. Thank you. I was smiling as you were offering the appreciation for the writing mm. and appreciate your appreciation. So thank oh, you. Oh, here we go. Yeah, it's <laughs> lovely to be here. I would, uh, you know, I think any of us might um, identify differently depending on the moment in the day. Yeah. I, I guess the umbrella uh, identity markers would be that I am an immigrant. I mm. identify as a racialized immigrant, which means non-white, mm. um, Iranian-born, but mixed race. So my father's Iranian, my mother is British. Mm. Um, but I grew up without uh, the benefit of being able to fully pass as white. So certainly mm. identify as a, a person, a woman of color. I'm also CEO and co-founder of a leading inclusion and equity company based in Toronto, Canada. And we do work with organizations, communities around predominantly North America, but also beyond borders. Mm. So I'm very deeply entrenched and uh, mired in this conversation that we're have, having as a species um, in, you know, at every single level, I would say as a society around how we create more inclusion and belonging for ourselves and what's at stake if we don't. And hence the book, um, is parallel to my day-to-day -day work is more of my soul, but it's very much parallel to the work I do mm. as a human. Well, well, thank you for that. And, and I'll plug a little bit. The, the company is Anima Leadership. Yeah, anima yeah. leadership. Mm -hmm. And um, having experienced some of the materials and you as a new but deep friend, um, mm -hmm. I uh, am 
grateful for the work you all do in the world because uh, mm. it's really important. Thanks, Jerry. Mm. So, Bones of Belonging. What a what an intriguing title. I really would like to talk about that. And I I'm, forgive me for not remembering which of your children, but one of your children talked about the image on the cover. <laughs> 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 so, so tell us about how, how did this book come to be? Well, we work, as I mentioned, a lot with organizations trying to wake up leaders and individuals within those kinds of systems to what equity and inclusion really means. What's mm -hmm. at stake? That this isn't just a theoretical debate about what words to use or the right things to do or say, but it's about creating environments where people can really be themselves and take for granted that it's okay and even safe to be themselves. Mm -hmm. And you know, I think about when I'm in an environment where I, I feel comfortable, I am more funny, I laugh louder, um, mm. I express my opinions more, more easily. I think I'm just generally a lot more joyous and um, thought-provoking and insightful than I am when I'm in environments where I don't feel that. Mm. And in fact, it's a very different person that shows up then. I tend to be quieter. Um, I second guess everything that comes out of my mouth. So I would, I would guess more rigid, perhaps even more intimidating. It's a very different self. And so what's at stake in this, in this, uh, in this, you know, conversation is really, if I go really deep, I think about if we want to really cultivate solutions to the problems we're living with, we have to create these environments where people can be themselves because it's only then that we really pull out the deep intelligence and wisdom that comes from a good diverse wisdom that doesn't just come out of the the same thinking patterns that have you know held up our society for centuries and 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 maintained systemic oppression for and centuries and maintained built and maintained systemic oppression for centuries that's right and yeah. so i do this work in institutions and i see the value but also the limits of data points and mm. theoretical arguments and mm. um, learning processes. Those are all really deeply important and valuable. But I think that we don't have enough accessible entry points for people to really understand what equity and inclusion means in a, you know, in a personal, in a relatable way. And so I wrote the Eat, Pray, Love, um, <laughs> the racial version, the brown version of Eat, Pray, Love. <laughs> you know, what does the world look like as a non-white person, as a non-white woman? Um, and, you know, writing about my family, writing about, uh, you referenced one of the stories earlier, going to the swimming pool and having my young son, who was four years old at the time, correct the, the attendant on the the correct pronunciation of, of my name, those micro moments that uh, I think anyone can relate to, but paint a picture of what it means to just be working, creating a space for oneself to be that is against the current, that's always against the current and the effort, but also the beauty that that process entails. Well, I, I really want to applaud you because, um, there is this balance that is both uh, in your work, but in your book as well, in both books, but particularly in Bones of Belonging. And, and now hear, hearing you, what I can imagine, and you'll correct me if this is wrong, 
that the phrase bones of belonging refers to a felt sense, the mm. sense that belonging felt in our bones mm-hmm. and not, as you put it, this sort of theoretical construct, which mm-hmm. uh, I think we see the limitations of, especially mm-hmm. in those of us who care about equity within organizations. Mm-hmm. We, we feel the limitations of doing the work that, mm-hmm. that stops at the heart, mm-hmm. that stops at the, at the felt sense mm-hmm. of it. Yeah. And, and the thing that I think you do so well in Bones of Belonging is you marry and combine an intellectual exploration with your own felt sense. And, you know, I think I wrote to you, and, I, uh, and if I didn't, I'll tell you again. One of the frustrations I have with most leadership books is that the author tends to disappear behind an yeah. internet intellectual fog. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and the thing I felt so vividly in this book is your presence. Hmm. You know, there, there are stories you tell of life in the pandemic and the mm-hmm. struggle of, you know, you and your husband having two little kids and having to navigate the space, you know, um, and it makes it viscerally real mm-hmm. while simultaneously making these larger observations about what life is like in mm-hmm. your body in your mm-hmm. experience. And as a result, I think you advance the dialogue mm. in a way it needs to be advanced. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Does that resonate mm-hmm. at all? It does resonate. I think that we have a very erroneous idea of what it takes to create equity. And that is that people have to understand the theory, believe in the theory, and then act on the theory. And that's actually not accurate. I think mm. it's it's we can circumvent a lot of that. If people can relate, they will shift behavior. We don't mm. need all the we don't need the perfect words and the academic understanding and all that stuff. In fact, that can often get in the way. Mm. What we need are more relatable access points. Uh, the second thing I would say is that I consciously wrote from the vantage point of personal story mm-hmm. because one of the center points of white um, cultural norms uh, Mm -hmm. is the separation of mind from body, you know, dating back to, you know, the Renaissance and Descartes. Yes, exactly. I think therefore I am that, you know, the splitting off of parts of ourselves, especially mind from body. And I think part of what we need and to create more equitable spaces, but also again, to, solve the problems facing us is to recognize interdependence. And we have to start marrying these divisive parts of ourselves and divided parts of our community and our human kind of species. And so I personally don't read any books anymore where somebody's <laughs> just spouting theory without themselves in the picture, because I think, well, how have you lived this? I don't trust you if you can't show me you've lived this and profoundly mm-hmm. wrestled with this down to your bones. Um, it's easy to spout theory. I could, you know, click through a PowerPoint presentation. I could have written a very different book that it would have been infinitely easy, easier for right. me to write. But that's not what I think is needed. 
I, I, I could not agree with you more. I think, you know, writ large within the, within the, the broad context of leadership generally, I think what you've just said is a very, very important concept within leadership. You know, I'll work with a client and they'll say, well, I can't, you know, we're having trouble trusting. It's like, well, are you showing up? Because mm. if you're not showing up, who is it they're going to trust? Mm-hmm. Right. And, and showing mm-hmm. up means showing up with your foibles, showing up with your challenges, showing up with your, the reality of your experience. Mm-hmm. And I, th- and, you know, in, in my forthcoming book reunion, I play with these words of remembering versus mm. dismembering. Oh, and, beautiful. And, and I think that, that we have not, that there is this relationship that that exists between the dismembered parts of ourselves mm-hmm. and the need to remember those mm-hmm. parts as a uh, as a ground upon which we can remember and connect with reconnect with others mm-hmm. and i think that one of the p- profound aspects of art mm-hmm. and leading from the heart and the truth of the experience, which you do so well in this book, mm. is that you get this um, this possibility for deep empathetic connection. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you a quick story. Mm-hmm. I, I'm working with a team of individuals, and we're collecting uh, what we're referring to as stories of belonging and video and audio experiences. And just last week, I was in Washington, D.C., with a group of folks who identify completely differently than I do, right? Mm-hmm. I am white, cisgendered, straight, male, mm-hmm. old, losing my hair, mm-hmm. slightly fat, right? That's me. That's who I am. <laughs> um, with power and privilege that that come from that experience, right? And one of the members of the group is a 14-year-old uh, uh, young man uh, uh, he identifies as black and, uh, we were talking about his life and growing up in a housing project in DC. And he had just recently buried his second best friend killed in gun violence, drug related gun mm-hmm. violence in the, mm-hmm. in the community. Mm-hmm. And he said something which was enormous. He said, I just need people to listen. Mm-hmm. And what he's, I think mm-hmm. he's asking for is know the bones of my belonging. Mm-hmm. That's right. You know, and we looked That's at right. each other. There was a group of six of us and we looked around and I just asked the question, why don't we look each other in the eye? And I don't think we do that. And I think you're right in identifying it as a, I'll, I'll use the, the structure. I think it's an, it's an outgrowth of white supremacist structure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, um, uh, values outcome mm-hmm. over yep. the experience, yeah. and and the clearest expression of that I see in business is valuing profit mm-hmm. over people. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and so you know when we go to only the theoretical or only the intellectual experience mm-hmm. and lose the bones, mm-hmm. we've lost the souls. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I think I was using bone as a metaphor for soul. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I, you know, 
and I appreciate you putting yourself out there in that way. Because, you know, you tell the stories of being a mother, being a wife, being a CEO, mm -hmm. <laughs> trying mm -hmm. to balance all of those things in the same space in during the pandemic and after the pandemic mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. experiencing all of that. And I think that you've hit upon some really beautiful stories that mm. illustrate some of that. Thanks, Jerry. I, you know, I want to just add that I also feel privileged to be in the position I'm in, which is uh, we have our own company. I work for myself. That gives me more freedom to be able to voice things that I hear regularly from other racialized individuals and leaders. You know, people will frequently come up to me at break, at lunch, after the session's over, in an email afterwards, voicing their experience within, similar to what I've written about, shades yeah. of what I've written about. And yet, I think, don't, for many reasons, just don't have the same access to be able to share their stories. And so that was part of it for me. What I mean, I, I don't think we rationally decide to write books like mm -hmm. these. That's, that's one thing. Mm -hmm. But I do... It was a choice to publish because I mm. knew that I could give voice to experiences that people have all the time that just do not get surfaced often enough. Mm. Thank you. Thank you for noting that because I think I, I lost touch with the privilege that I, that aspect of the privilege that I carry, which is as a co-founder, as a CEO of my own company, I too have the capacity um, you know, sure, there there may be a loss of clients that we would both might experience, but there's a piece of us that are sort of like, okay, we're willing to deal with that. Yeah. You yeah. know, um, uh, but when we are working within the confines of other people's structures, mm -hmm. um, we don't have the privilege of speaking with that same. Uh, uh, vehemence and veracity, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. you know, and it's important that we both recognize it, that I recognize that that happens. You mm -hmm. know, I had a um, conversation with uh, the marketing team for the new book and one of the publicists said, you know, Jerry, this new book is not necessarily safe. Are you okay mm -hmm. with, um, you know, getting into public mm -hmm. relations dialogues that mm -hmm. won't necessarily be safe. And mm -hmm. I kind of just smiled and the Brooklyn and mm -hmm. me got really activated. And then my editor cut me <laughs> off. <laughs> she said, she said, you don't know Jerry, if you think he's afraid of not being safe, you know? Uh huh. Well, thank you. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for doing that. Because quite frankly, you know, the risk for someone like myself is I, I recognize is also greater than it would be for yes. um, a white man or a white woman in my position. I mean, for, for example, the book deals a lot with issues of race, immigration and exile. So I'm talking about belonging through this very particular right. landscape. We have a lot of books written about experiences through the lens of gender. You know, I think about Glennon Doyle, Elizabeth Gilbert, Cheryl Strayed, you know, these white women that have written about their life experiences through the lens of feminism and gender. And people, there's a big appetite for that. But we still have difficulty talking about race. And so I know that there's there's a there's a risk being a racialized person, being a brown person, being a brown woman 
talking openly about these issues, I know there's going to be some blowback. Like you said, the Brooklyn, I didn't grow up in Brooklyn, but I'm going to use it as a, <laughs> as a The Brooklyn and me also came out and just kind of went like, I'm going to, but I'm going to willingly take this risk because I know we need to surface this discomfort. I know people relate to it. I know people will see myself as speaking for some of their, their experiences. I know a lot of people will welcome it and I know it'll make some people uncomfortable and I'm going to stand for all of it. But I say this because going back to my thanking you, because we also need a lot more white people to write about experiences of what gets diminished for you as a white person in this white dominant culture. Well, a lot of white people use their individual um, ethnicity. They lose their own um, connection to ants. There's a, there's a white brushing of everybody's experience under the same ubiquitous cultural umbrella. There's a loss in that, right? Um, There's a lack of people being able to talk about, privilege that comes with white identity in honest, open ways, and the how hard it can be to build relationship across the racial divide. Anyway, there's many, but the fact that you stepped into this and investigated your own vulnerability and culpability, I think is so inspiring. And I just, it's why you and I have developed a friendship, because I see also the courage it's taken for you to do that. Well, I, I appreciate your saying that. And you know, it's a lot more courageous for someone who's coming outside, coming from a position outside of that normative dominant culture. It is unfortunate that those of us who have the safety and power are not willing to take the risks. But the God's honest truth is, I don't see how the world changes unless those of us who have power are willing to risk losing that power, whatever that would look like to see the world that we say we want to have exist, right? Um, I think it's a moral responsibility, you know, just, and, and from where I sit, I see, I appreciate your, your widening the lens to also talk about the experience, I think you called it, of exile, you know, this experience of, of, of emigration, um, which is also part part of what's lacking in the dialogue. There's identity and racialized identity discussion. There's gender identity that is not nearly as discussed as it should. And then there's that immigrant experience, which is equally not uh, discussed. And they all mix. And the thing is, it's actually wonderful when we have this dialogue. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's this, um, spicy. you know, I read it's spicy. That's exactly. I'm waking up. I'm word. even like finding my energy levels going up even when we're hitting this point in our conversation. Right. You know, feels, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm thinking, you know, just a few weeks ago, I read this incredible book by Kathy Park, Park Hong called Minor Feelings, mm. um, which is her experience as, as an Asian woman in the United States as a poet. And, Mm. and it's fierce. I mean, I'll say it from the Brooklyn, it's fierce as fuck. Mm. And it's got that discomfort that is exactly the kind of thing that we need to be looking at. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's not monolithic, just like your book is not monolithic. You don't pretend to speak for all, right? And none of us need 
anyone to speak for all. No. <laughs> just recreate the same system. <laughs> That's right. That's right. You know, and, and you know, it, it, it's such a rich, vibrant experience. It's spicy mm. to, to imagine. I mean, you know, and, 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 and I see that even in, in the, 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 the vignettes that you share in this book, the little stories, like I, you know, I have here, um, skates, the, mm. which, you know, is this, well, you tell, it, it, it says you, uh, taking the family out skating. Mm-hmm. It's the family holiday, so that afternoon we bundle ourselves into snowshoots to go on a nature walk nearby in the ravine. After half an hour, half hour of wandering over tra- train tracks, feeding breadcrumbs to a group of wild ducks, and stopping for snacks under snow-laden branches, we emerge through the trees, blinking in amazement. I look over at Shaquille, is mm-hmm. your husband's name? Mm-hmm. Awed at this magic we've stumbled upon, I think how that little boy is not alone anymore. Mm. You tell the story of his belonging, mm-hmm. of his experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And with your writing, you make it visceral. You make it a felt sense of experience. Mm-hmm. I love that story. I think that if we live consciously, there's a there's a grace we're offered opportunities for healing that are often arrive unexpectedly randomly and that morning um we were um somehow i don't we were talking about i don't even know how it came up but somehow this my husband embarked on telling the story of his immigration um and immigrating from Pakistan and being beaten up and, and very isolated when he first moved and he didn't speak the language. And he, uh, there was a moment in time where he went skating by himself because there was no, his parents didn't skate and no one knew the times. And I don't know where he found the skates and the rink closed and he was by himself, quite a, I think six years old at this moment, huddled over trying to get his skates off and he couldn't get one of them off his foot. So he hobbled home through the blizzard Um, And I liken that to the experience of immigrating, how one is so deeply isolated, left out in the cold, facing the elements, um, trying to sort of um, learn how to walk normally, um, Mm. gain the same leverage that others have. Mm. And uh, he told the story and my daughter started to sob. She was eight at the time, just sob unconsolably, unconsolably. And finally, he had the brilliant idea of reenacting this moment with her. And so Mm. she got to walk over to him and offer to help walk him home. And so Mm. there's this little reparation moment. And fast forward that afternoon, we happened to go through a walk, um, walk through the ravine and totally unexpectedly, Jerry, it's Mm. winter. We're walking through, walking through. And finally we come out to the, the crest of the hill, that moment you just read. And I kid you not, we come across this, volunteer made skating rink and people Mm. are in their families and skating and helping each other. There's this vibrant community. Mm. And I thought I just was so deeply, deeply moved because it Mm. felt like this moment of full circle. Like Mm. what are the odds that Mm. we've just 
had this moment talking about, yeah, just, it was so powerful. And my daughter, and I looked over and my daughter um, reached out for my husband's hand. And I thought, it just, I thought, wow, this is, this is grace. This is, this is, this is grace. This is what's possible for all of us. You know, I, I yeah. This is life. This is love. This is, you know, your daughter's reaction to her father as a little boy. Yeah. You know, I was weeping as I read that story. And, mm. and um, you know, the reparation, the micro reparation, as, as you've termed it, was not only for Shaquille, but for your daughter. Because there was a powerless, you know, there, there, mm. there, there, there's, there's an empowerment that comes to her mm. to realize that she could do something for this, for the little boy who was your, her father. Mm. You know, I hadn't thought about until now her experience coming mm. from watching the, the skating happen, but I bet that that kind of mm. solidified something for her watching mm. it. Beside him. It's, it's, um, it's moments like that. It's stories like that, that I think too often are lost in the dialogue that we have about equity and inclusivity. Yeah. It's as if, and, 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 and I'll expand it again. It's too often moments like that, that are lost Mm -hmm. in our dialogues about leadership. Yeah. It's, it's, it's as if, you know, we assume the responsibility. Both of us are CEOs. We assume the responsibility of CEO. And when somehow we've internalized this notion that we're to leave our hearts to the side. Mm-hmm. And yet yeah. a story like that shows that the heart connection mm-hmm. is the source of some of our greatest insights. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's and, right. And, and connection and, and the creation of... Even if we get it wrong, because we will get it wrong, mm-hmm. we can still repair. Mm-hmm. That's right. Right. It's like it's pushing up against that notion of perfection mm-hmm. and that deep, deep connection between the, the drive for perfection and the maintenance of dominant structures. That's right. And, I, you know, I... I I know that you follow quantum physics a bit, but the moments mm. become fractals of the larger pattern. I mean, mm. to change a system, we don't always have to go broad. We can sometimes have micro moments that ripple out and invisibly shift something in the culture. I'm a real believer in the power of that. So I think that that's another reason why leaders need to go to the heart because when leaders have those heartfelt moments, it does ripple out more broadly because leaders set the tone and, you know, model the culture. Mm. Mm-hmm. And in fact, yeah, the higher up people go in organizations, the more, the further they get from their own heart, but also the further removed they get from their own identity experiences and the heart in those experiences. So a lot of racialized leaders at the CEO level have completely, especially divorced themselves from experiences of immigration or what it means to be racialized or not fit in or the moments that I've described in the book, because it's even more of a liability for me to touch those experiences of vulnerability Mm. as a non-white leader. And yet Mm. again, I think even more reason why they're needed and can ripple out. I I wonder then, therefore, because this is another passage that I found so deeply moving 
if if there's a connection here and you know with your permission i'll read again this is from the section called rebel body over the next decade i dealt with the fear of not meeting white people's standards by stuffing endlessly white stuff substances bread cake ice cream rice down my throat maybe in the hopes of eventually becoming white enough from the inside out to pass is there you know we were just talking about that experience as a racialized identity trying to fit in and then you know this image of consuming white substances mhm mhm really mm-hmm. to the detriment of your own body that's right that's right and insert whatever other substance you want to use instead of food for me <laughs> it was very viscerally an eating disorder it was food as well as but it can be um you know um uh gobbling up white cultural mannerisms or white-based european knowledge or or culture um and not to say that i just want to make it clear it's not that dominant white european culture is bad it's the fact that it becomes it, that it's norm. dominant, that it yes. replaces and substitutes and erases right. other cultural ways of being and knowing and acting that are equally valuable, but do not get their place, do not get honored or visibilized in, in the system we're part of. Um, I had a woman in one of my sessions, a South Asian woman from India, who talked about consciously going to her workplace when she first immigrated here, wearing a... a shawar kameez, which is the the robe and then the, mm. you know, the color robe mm. and then the pants and um, to her place of work. Uh, and after a couple of years, just stopped and doesn't do it at all anymore because not again, not because there was overt racism or overt things that were said to her, but she just got exhausted by um, either people ignoring or, mm. or, overtly visibilizing why she was wearing such an outfit and it just was never she could never just be in the experience it was just never sort of on par that's that's the that's yeah. the pressure I, you know i think that uh it, it, it the connection that that occurs for me goes back to a brilliant essay james baldwin wrote called the price of the ticket mm. in which he talks about the price of the ticket of whiteness Right. is the loss of ethnic identity that's right and and that that you know he he talks about the need to know this is his quote to know from whence one came to know mm-hmm. from whence one came and in the experience i've had of these last few years as i leaned heavily into this question what the connection i read that passage and i thought of my grandparents from italy and my grandfather dominic guido founding the american italian society in brooklyn the american italian society wow. purposeful choice of words what was what year was this 1920 wow. so when when the immigration laws in the united states were still up for debate mm-hmm. and the supreme court still had not ruled yet on who was white yeah right i mean that's how recent 
Yeah. This whole and that under the 1790 law, white people and the children of enslaved black folks could be termed citizens. Mm-hmm. But that was it. Yeah. And so who is white was a very yeah. relevant question. Yeah. And his choice and my grandmother's choice that their seven children would not know how to speak Italian. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's the, that's it. That's exactly, that's. And it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's that movement towards safety. And there was yeah. a privilege that came to them by being able to be accepted such yeah. that two generations later, there is no question of my whiteness. Right. Right. And what was lost. That's right. In that movement. That's right. And, and, and the ability to then read your passage, what gets lost is the empathetic reading of it, not a sympathetic reading of it. That's right. You know, you're hitting the nail on the head. My hope is I think the solution to undoing oppression is not the pity move, is not just about... Um, I have to sacrifice, sacrifice, sacrifice to help people of color. I mean, that that's altruism is is useful. It has its place. But the deeper change mechanism is to go, what, what have I lost in the yes. system? And let me excavate my own experience and know from whence I came, know what my bones hold. And then I can relate. It's not that the loss of what I have lost as a white person may, is equal to necessarily what immigrants and communities of color have lost, but there is a loss and I can relate through empathy. Right. And I think that is a much more profound and stable relational place to, to come from. It's one doesn't get thrown off at the first mistake, right. <laughs> feeling right. bad at making the first mistake or, right. you know, um, right. because I, I know that I need to undo this for, for my own reasons too. I'm losing out in the system too. The, the 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 danger, of course, is false equivalency, right? That's exactly yeah. We can't you know, do that, and, and we can't diminish the other's experience with uh, white tears, no. um, which is no. you know an appropriate term for for but 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 it's it it's a nuanced stance, mm-hmm. I think that's required, which is to understand not the myths of our ancestors' experience, mm-hmm. but the reality of that experience. Yeah. So that yeah. I can then, from that vantage point, look mm-hmm. to, say, the southern border of the United States and say, what is that mm-hmm. uh, immigrant experience like? Mm-hmm. And what does it feel like when we put people through, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, hurdles to to enter a country mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that did not exist prior to 1923. That's right. I mean, we just need a lot more education on these issues. One of the steps in the process towards having broader collective conversations, I think, is having space for 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 racialized folks to we are having our own conversations quite frankly mm-hmm. it's happening all over the place mm-hmm. and within the black community within subsections within my community within you know there's mm-hmm. a lot of but we also need spaces for white people to have their own conversations around race and what it means and uh, as well and i think and, yeah, yeah which is why think, your book again is so important well i appreciate you saying that the 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 
it, it all comes from a place of saying, this is not working. That's right. And I have a moral obligation to acknowledge that it's not working. Yeah. And that, you know, um, if we dedicate ourselves to trying to create um, better leadership, whatever the hell that means, Mm -hmm. that leaves aside the notion of creating systemic belonging, then we are perpetuating the same problems. That's right, 100%. Yeah. So, you know, I I think that, that books such as yours really should be read widely and broadly and 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 you know i would offer that sometimes reading bones of belonging felt like i was reading your journal and Mm. um there's a privilege in looking into your heart and i appreciate that and but that's i think part of that experience of looking in each other's eyes and just imagining what it's like to be in your body, in your experience. Mm -hmm. And then uh, reaching across and saying, okay, so here's how I take away from that experience. Yeah, that's right. Here's what gets stirred up inside of me. That's right. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And then from there, we do the intellectualized work of policy making and decision making. Yeah. Yeah. And, and and so we've not lost the connection. And, you know, we make a decision that's a policy-based decision. Mm-hmm. And then it needs to be changed. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's not perfect. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Stories are the oldest recipe for inclusion, <laughs> I like mm. to say. You know, they uh, they change they change us indelibly often in ways that we don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Much more than facts and stats. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to, I want to thank you for this conversation. It's, um, and I want to thank you for doing the work that you do. Um, and, and I want to thank you for your friendship. Hmm. You know, it, uh, I learn each time we have a conversation and, um, and, and I'm really appreciative of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I hope that a thousand, that thousands of people buy the book. <laughs> uh, thank you, Jerry. And I want to say, you know, I know uh, Parker connected us, Parker Palmer, um, and that this connection for me has been reparative mm-hmm. uh, because I, I still find, even though I'm, you know, you and I started this conversation saying we're both hitting milestones. I won't share. We're both yours, feeling but... old. <laughs> we're both feeling old. I, I don't mind sharing. You know, I'm hitting my 50 mark this year. And and, and... I'll be 60, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There. We've come out of the age closet. Uh, um, but it's still my experience, unfortunately, that when I meet white men in leadership, I mm. am just so conscious of still having to be so perfect and on mm. the ball and articulate. And, you know, I maybe that's some of my own patterning. And I also know there's still this 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 bar that I have to meet mm. to be mm. seen as equally expert to 
to to themselves. And meeting you has been reparative um, for me just in, you know, yes, there's your identity as a white cisgendered male, but mm. your depth of heart mm. and presence has been just um, allowed me to really recognize how possible that is. I don't see that very often. You are going to make me cry, <laughs> which is not uncommon. <laughs> um, well, thank, thank you for that. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's, it's, it's really been a delight and, uh, we'll have all the requisite pointers in the material where people can buy the book and things like that. And so. Always a pleasure, Jerry. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed this episode, go to reboot.io slash podcast to listen to all five seasons of our podcast conversations and leave us a review on iTunes. That's the best way for other people to find and enjoy the show just as you have done. And don't forget to join our mailing list at reboot.io slash sign up so you never miss an episode. Thank you for listening. Are you ready to step more fully into the complex and exacting work that's required to become a better human and a better leader? We've developed six zero-cost, long-form email courses ranging from 15 to 80 days to help you better understand the fundamentals of communication, dig deep into radical self-inquiry, manage your psychology, as well as practical advice to enhance all aspects of your business. Our courses are perfect for any leader looking to lead and live a more aligned life. Your friends, family, and coworkers will thank you. Explore all our free courses at reboot.io slash resources.